Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. A rise in foodborne illnesses from large-scale farms are one of the main reasons Congress enacted the Food Safety Modernization Act in 2010. The law aims to ensure the U.S. food supply is safe by shifting the focus from responding to contamination to preventing it. It is the first major overhaul of our nation's food safety practices since 1938, and it includes new regulations for produce farms and for facilities that process food. It basically means some big changes to our food system. Foodborne illnesses are seldom traced back to small local and regional producers. Yet the biggest danger of these proposed rules is its potential impact on small farms. A A group of concerned small-scale farmers gathered in Willits, California this month to discuss the act that has caused confusion. First of all, I'm going to talk about kind of the general exemptions and modified requirements. By that meaning... Not everybody's going to be automatically into this thing, at least as currently written, which is why commenting on this is going to be so important for all of you. Because right now there are some exemptions in place, but this is sort of a moving target in a very rough draft format, so we don't know if that's going to maintain the current exemptions or not. So first of all, if you guys want to take a look... um, Anything you're growing, so if there's no commerce involved, not you know, you're not selling it, it's all. It is 500 pages long of rules and exemptions that, in the room, orchards, did not totally make sense That's to the seasoned farmers, who have never had any food safety issues. In Chapter Three of our Farm Action series, we travel again to Mendocino County, where the local food movement strengthened its roots and formed firm ground. Here we meet Doug Mosel, the Mendocino Grain Project. Ukiah, California. He grows several different types of grain. Several varieties of wheat with a focus on heirloom and landrace varieties. Barley, rye, oats, and uh, this year for the first time we're planting spelt and lentils. Doug, like most farmers, is busy. In addition to farming, he co-hosts a radio show called the Ecology Hour on KZMX Public Radio Station. I was able to catch up with him in his truck in downtown Ukiah before he had to plow one of his fields. His dog, Jay, a big white lab, lay sleeping and snoring in the back seat. She's my regular companion, and uh, this is sort of her little uh, den uh, where she hangs out if I'm going to a meeting or having a meal out or something of that sort. Otherwise, she's outside, hanging out in the field or in the parking lot, somewhere close to the truck, waiting for me. Farming for Doug was unexpected. In the mid-1990s, he decided he wanted to move out of the city and live in a rural community. was somewhat spurred in the timing of that by Y2K, which will be known to some of your listeners as a time when there was thought to be the risk of a major technological breakdown because computers wouldn't be able to handle the, the changeover to a two and three zeros. But in any case, I found myself checking out Mendocino County because I had friends who lived here. Doug's previous work as a healthcare consultant inspired him to change his path. I became disenchanted with that when community and religious not-for-profit hospitals began to act more like uh, for-profit outfits, and now we have to interrupt. Sam! Are you making any money? (laughs) You always ask me if I'm making any money. Ukiah, a population of roughly 7,000 people, is small, especially for a popular guy like Doug. We are spotted by one of his friends, a local sheep herder. Around here, you're a, a newcomer until you've been here 35 or 40 years. So you see, I'll die before I'm an old-timer here. (laughs) Back to the roots of his agricultural story. I sort of reached the conclusion that I I no longer wanted to try to make organizations like that any better if that's all they were going to do is go after profit. And um, so I started drifting away from that work. I found myself once having moved here with uh, uncertainty about my future. And not long after I got here, 
I started working with Joanna Macy, uh, a, a well-known uh, deep ecology teacher, and for 10 years I was her assistant, and I would commute to the Bay Area almost weekly to work with her. Then I got asked to coordinate the Measure H campaign in Mendocino County, which was a voter initiative to make this um, the first county in the U.S. to ban genetically modified crops. And in the course of that, I got to know a number of farmers and started working with one of the farmers at the farmer's market and uh, in his goat dairy. And I worked in that capacity uh, part-time for quite a few years. In the course of that, I decided I wanted to do something in the way of farming myself and decided that the lazy man way to farm would be to grow hay because it would be very seasonal and I'd only be busy several weeks out of the year. Around the same time I moved to Anderson Valley and was one of the founding members of the Anderson Valley Food Shed Group. That group organized a workshop of farmers and food producers from around the county to talk about local food and how to support it. And one of the gaps that we identified in the course of that all-day workshop was that the local staple food system had vegetables and fruit and meat and eggs and even some dairy, but no grain. So that put grain on the radar, and uh, it wasn't long after that that I started working with a young farmer in the valley there, and we decided to plant a couple of acres of grain as a, an experiment. Um, and in the meantime, I got my hands on a used combine for harvesting grain, and the next thing I knew, I was asking myself how, if I had this combine, was I going to make good use of it? Well, I guess I better find some place to plant more grain. There was no place in Anderson Valley to speak of beyond an acre or two because of all the vineyards having taken up the prime ag land. Then he was asked to harvest grain on a family farm and was eventually invited to grow grain there as well. So that allowed us to move into a situation where we could lease enough acres to uh, establish a decent enough production of grain, sufficient production of grain, that uh, we could start our grain share, our grain CSA. So there's the nutshell story. And so what are the challenges of growing grain here, and what have the, how have they changed over the course of the five or so years? The growing inconsistency and unpredictability of rainfall, because we dry farm our grains, we are consequently dependent on winter and spring rainfall to ensure production. And we have had, for example, two successive years of uh, dry winters and dry springs which has meant we've had light harvests. The second big issue we've had to deal with is uh, how to manage weeds in uh, a natural or biological growing system because we grow without the use of synthetics or herbicides or pesticides. So our uh, crops have been plagued in some cases with weeds and uh, to the point that I've joked a couple of years in a row about the wisdom of offering grain shares instead of weed shares. Uh, so luckily we have equipment uh, that allows us to do a good job of separating weeds from our grains and therefore can offer uh, a clean product to our grain share members and the places who sell our grains and our flour. And the third challenge has been infrastructure because in the decades since the concentration of grain production in the Central Valley and the Great Plains and Eastern Washington and areas that are now the main sources of all the grain, 
especially the wheat, there is no longer any local infrastructure. So we've had to recreate the capacity to clean and separate grain and mill flour and so on because uh, there hasn't been any place to which we could take the grain. So we're now in a, a five-county region. We're now the only place where other small grain growers can bring small production amounts of grain to be cleaned and separated so they can actually make good use of it. As a, a farmer who doesn't have very much capital, the fourth problem has been finding a way to create this infrastructure and keep our production going when I don't have a whole lot of seed money. And luckily, we've been able to scrape it together to the point that we have decent production now, but our next step forward in increasing our, uh, our capacity uh, will have to do with finding more money to, to put into uh, pieces of equipment that we need. The other challenge now in just the short span of four or five years is uh, producing enough grain to meet demand uh, because the popularity of local dry farmed heirloom grains is significant and uh, bakers and retailers as well as individual families now want more of the grain. Our main challenge and that of other small growers in our area is to ramp up production to the point that we can uh, meet that growing demand. The rain in this region has fallen short this year, but that is not necessarily a bad thing, explains Doug. And luckily, grain is not very demanding of water. Uh, and we've actually found that there's a correlation between uh, overwatering and we think there's a correlation between overwatering and lower protein levels in the grain. It seems that if the grain is stressed by slightly less rainfall than one might want for high production, the protein levels in the grains uh, are greater. So it's that decision that I think gets made with respect to uh, production of grapes, for example, where uh, a stressed plant will produce a higher sugar uh, grape than, than one that's overwatered and overfed. Um, there even, while there is a relationship between protein and uh, nitrogen fed to the crop, too much nitrogen means a jump in production, but a reduction in protein. So there, there's a, um, a kind of art to coordinating these variables of both uh, chance and planning that result in a, a really high quality grain. And, and do you treat the soil at all? Some of the fields where we're growing have never been composted. They've been in hay crops, including some alfalfa. So we're depending on, on the, uh, the nutrients that are in the soil uh, to feed the crops. Uh, a couple of the fields have had compost on them two years running a couple of years back. And what we're going to be doing in the next season or two is introducing uh, cover crops that allow us to do green manure and also most likely adding uh, some compost. Green manure is uh, cover crops, uh, so-called plow down crops that are allowed to grow up and then they're incorporated in the soil where they basically rot into uh, nutrition, into nutrients that will feed the crops. If those cover crops are nitrogen fixing, then for the next season, there's more nitro nitrogen in the soil to feed the grain. How much do you produce per acre? That varies significantly from year to year based on uh, a lot on rainfall and partly on soil conditions. And what we find with these heirloom dry farm grains is that uh, high production is not their primary characteristic. So, for example, where it might be expected that in 
eastern Washington or central California, uh, wheat might produce 100 bushels to the acre, which um, would be uh, 6,000 pounds, 3 tons per acre. We're lucky if we can get in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 bushels per acre. And typically I project production of about 15 to 20 bushels per acre, which means in the neighborhood of 900 to uh, 1,200 pounds to the acre. Why do you think it's important to grow grains? And I don't know if you've heard of the paleo diet. Well, and then there's the whole issue, which we could spend another interview about (laughs) having to do with gluten sensitivity, which seems to be either on the rise or imagined to be on the rise. And true uh, problems with gluten in the form of celiac disease, which is very serious. I believe that as with all other food crops, diversity is the hallmark of uh, nature and the route to resilient food production. If the handful, the small handful of modern varieties of wheat in this country are ever attacked by a serious rust problem, those crops are doomed. If one has a range of varieties of wheat and many of the older ones are less susceptible to the modern problems that occur with intensive farming, offer an insurance policy against um, losing a really precious source of nutrition. I think that the old varieties of wheat, I'm convinced that the older varieties of wheat are better nutritionally and way better in terms of taste and exciting variation in color and shape and size. Modern wheats are like modern corn. They all look the same. And they're all grown in monocultural ways that require heavy doses of uh, artificial synthetic nitrogen and often with the use of uh, herbicides to control weeds. So the consequence is a less healthy soil. Um, I think growing naturally and depending on rain and depending on the nutrients in the soil and growing uh, soil uh, by taking good care of it ensures a healthier crop and healthier soil for future crops. What do you love about growing grain? Six months or so ago, it came to me to refer to grain as my muse, and I continue to be intrigued by the incredible variety of wheats in particular, that being the grain with which I'm most familiar. The aromas, the colors, the amazing nuance in colors and tastes, the variation and beauty in the grain heads themselves, all uh, intrigue and inspire me. What are some of the color ranges? Oh, gosh from a rich amber, a durum that has this amazing amber quality in a very large, hard grain to um, uh, Ethiopian blue tinge, which has a purple-looking grain and a flower that is uh, has a purplish tinge to it to the multi-hued greens and browns and blues of rye to the uniform, light, tan color of a Sonora. I I was working with Monica Spiller the other day. Monica is the founder of the Whole Grain Connection and has carefully propagated uh, seeds of uh, many varieties of wheat to the point that they could be reintroduced to farmers at such a scale that they could plant small plots and increasingly large larger fields. And I was helping her clean some spelt the other day. And we opened this bag of spelt grain and we're just taken aback by the the sweetness of, of the aroma uh, in the bag. I mean, it, there was a, a vanilla quality to the smell of it that really surprised me. And there was the day last summer when I was harvesting barley 
for another farmer. And, and we couldn't help noticing that in the field, it was a hot day, and in the field as we were harvesting the barley, it smelled like fresh bread. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. It's uh, very rewarding to uh, watch a plant that in all of its variation that has a DNA that is more complex than that of the human being. Wow. Oh, I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's amazing. Yeah, it's true. And its origins are less than clear how it, how it actually came to be because it appears that they came from two different strands to form this very complex DNA. You are listening to an interview with Farmer Doug Mozo, who produces organic heirloom grains in Ukiah Valley, California, back in the morning. A little wrangler was born. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 2, introducing Pumpernickel Rye and Pandemie, and by USU Human Resources. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. In addition to the 25 million people in this country who have been diagnosed with diabetes or who have it but don't yet know that they do, an estimated 79 million people have entered the danger zone known as pre-diabetes. Their blood glucose levels are higher than normal but have not yet risen to the level at which they would indicate a diagnosis of diabetes. In people with prediabetes, the pancreas may not be working as efficiently as it once did, or the body may be gradually building a resistance to the insulin it produces so that the hormone can't do as good a job of clearing glucose from the bloodstream. The good news is that type 2 diabetes is preventable. Diabetes prevention is as basic as eating more healthfully, becoming more physically active, and losing a few extra pounds, and it's never too late to start. This is Lisa for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. So the Food Safety Modernization Act, what is your concern with the FDA-proposed Food Safety Modernization Act? Concentration of control of food production in the hands of an agency that knows nothing about agriculture. And related to that, subjecting small growers, small producers whose integrity lies in their face-to-face relationships with the people who enjoy the food they produce to uh, an unmanageable and unrealistic set of regulations. Historically, the real dangers in the form of foodborne illnesses have arisen from large concentrated production, not from small, diversified, local production. So the attempt here seems to be to apply a set of regulations to small producers um, that are a result of the practices of an increasingly concentrated food system where there's exposure to the very pathogens that the regulations are intended to minimize. Small-scale independent farms generally don't have any food safety problems, right? Mm-hmm. But they're trying to put this general blanket of rules over all of the agricultural industry. How do you see farmers reacting to that? And even the ones who are exempt, will they still be affected somehow? Well, I think one of the scary things is that a great many uh, small producers uh, aren't reacting because they, they don't know about the proposed regulations and therefore haven't thought about how they might affect them. But the net result of these regulations... Even in the case of farmers who are farmers or facilities who are exempt 
or who are subjected to, uh, if you will, a lighter set of rules because they're modified based on income, the net effect could be that all farmers and facilities then become subject to the possibility of uh, having their uh, exemptions withdrawn on virtually a moment's notice, 10 days to be exact, uh, because the FDA perceives there to be a threat to food safety. The burden on those small producers of, first of all, demonstrating to the FDA that they should be exempt or should be subject to modified rules. And secondly, the burden of uh, being vigilant about uh, the possibility that they could be uh, visited or examined uh, or have their exemptions withdrawn is a huge distraction from the actual care uh, that they've placed on uh, producing and processing food locally. I think the other net effect is is simply that of putting uh, all small farms suddenly on the radar on the same radar screen as the very large producers who operate on uh, industrial factory scales, who are the ones who properly should be the focus of food safety concerns, rather than uh, individuals who are producing for people that, in most cases, are known to them personally. Are all food producers re required to register with the FDA yet? <laughs> well, yes and no. No, they're not currently required. All are not, at least, uh, as I understand it, legally currently required to register. Um, not uh, even under the new proposed regulations uh, are all producers supposed to be required to register. But the fact of the matter is that in proving that they should be exempt or subject to modified rules, they identify who they are, where they sell, and they're required to uh, identify uh, at the point of sale where their food is grown uh, or processed. So in effect, uh, it creates for the FDA a nationwide database of small farms and facilities. There are two types of rules, one for producers and one for food production facilities. Doug falls into this category as well, because he has a grain processing facility. Doug and other local critics are concerned that some of the most costly practices that would be required are not justified based on the available science. One example is in the water testing section. The standards use generic E. coli as a base measurement for contamination. The problem? Generic E. coli is extremely common in water supplies across the country. Yet it does not correlate with the risk to human health. Small farms are exempt from the rules. But according to Doug, there is still cause for concern. So in the case of an exemption, the total food um, sold, the total food produced, based on uh, an average over three years, and most of the produce is sold to what they call a qualified end user, no more than 275 miles from the farm, means that farm is exempt. If the average gross revenue, including all food, including uh, animal feed produced on the farm, um, is less than $500,000, and you sell mostly to a qualified end user, then you're subject to modified requirements. There are also strict record-keeping rules. Where this gets dicey is that if you're not required to do all the detailed record-keeping, but your exemption is challenged, then on what basis do uh, you rebut the proposal to withdraw your exemption? Because you don't have the required records if you haven't been required to keep them. So that's part of the 
confusion in how the proposed regulations are written. And uh, it's one of the things that, that hopefully the FDA will get lots of feedback about from comments uh, and will result in clarification. Do you know when the final version is due out from the FDA? We won't know until they publish it. And we won't know until they publish it whether it's the final version or whether there will be a second round of comments. They have the liberty to uh, publish a second revised set of proposed rules and to offer another comment period. And one of the things, again, that many of us hope is that they will do just that, that they will take into consideration all these many suggestions, uh, revise the recommendation, the recommended regulations, and then uh, ask for more comment. And then once they close uh, the comment period and the regulations are finalized, then they will issue a notice with uh, a date effective for when the rules will apply. For more information and to submit comments, it is not too late. You have until midnight. He suggests the website sustainableagriculture.net. So if people go there, they also there will find guidance on how to submit comments. Doug also co-hosts the radio program called The Ecology Hour. In my, I always have a reserve CD in the player for my show in case I need it. And the one that I've gravitated to the last couple of programs has been uh, Willie Nelson's, one of Willie Nelson's albums. And the title song is Let's Face the Music and Dance. And I think it's kind of a good theme for our time. You know, the music is pretty somber, but we need to face it and dance anyway. Because it's the only rational option. <laughs> the other one is just to give up. Trouble ahead, but if there's moonlight and music and love and romance, let's face the music and dance. Before the fiddlers have fled, before they ask us to pay the bill, and while we still have a chance, let's face the music and dance. Doug dropped me off at his friend's neighborhood market in Ukiah to get another perspective. It is just a little bit noisy with all the refrigerators, and Scott had to man the store while also being interviewed. My name is Scott Craddy. I'm the manager of the Ukiah Farmer's Market, uh, Saturday market in Ukiah. You know, I'm also general manager of the Mendocino County Farmer's Market Association that runs all of the certified markets in the county. And then uh, my other little job is I am the owner and uh, proprietor of the Westside Renaissance Market, which is Ukiah's last little neighborhood market. And its strange little theme is local family made. We have the uh, sort of largest collection of things made in Mendocino anywhere. Um, the whole pride and joy of it is that we try to deal with as many quality local family producers as possible. So it means it's always changing and always kind of interesting. Are you from this area? Or if you talk a little bit about your background and how you got into the food industry? Actually, the food industry is a completely different thing for me. Um, spent my first 12 years with a real job with AT&T and uh, ended up as uh, manager of state government affairs for California. And then I spent 12 years as part of a two-person consulting firm that did consulting on economics and telecom regulation all over the country. And <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to go get somebody some ice cream in just a moment. Uh, so, uh, but when I first sort of heard about the local lo localization movement, it just really grabbed me. I'd always been doing uh, sort of activist kind of things on the side, and it struck me as absolutely the sort of movement I'd been waiting for, uh, sort of just sort of doing things on a scale where you can be personally responsible for them. And the longer I spent working in that, the more it became 
obvious that food is the center of it all. It's the thing that can bring people together. It's the thing we all do every day. Um, so it's a lot of good reasons it seemed that food was the place to start and keep going. I'll be right back. Hello. How are you? How are you doing? was our local museum oh. curator stopping in for his ice cream of the day. He does that fairly often. Food, the more you think about it, the more it becomes obvious how central it is to everything. If we just got the food we eat right, so much of the world would reshape itself around us. The land would be cleaner, everybody would be healthier, uh, there would be sort of better relationships, we'd be sitting down and talking more because it takes time to prepare food when you do it the right way, when you inconvenience yourself and actually sort of learn to work with what's available locally and seasonally, you're always sort of learning and growing and connecting. Um, it, it's, you know, it from, from cleaning up the environment to reducing fuel use to so, I mean, just, just get that, just get like what you eat every day right. and. Um, it would reshape the world in such really beautiful ways. What is it that you love about this area in particular? What I love about this area is that there's so much that's still possible. It's not cookie cutter, hasn't been paved over yet. Uh, it's got a lot of funk and it's not quite sure what it wants to be when it grows up. So, uh, and it's still on a small enough scale that um, anybody who really cares enough to get involved can actually see the difference they make pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, because there's a, such a small body of people that are really in there trying to, trying to make the place work, you can get to know all those people quite quickly. Can you talk about this area in terms of agriculture and small-scale farming? And like you said, there's a, a tradition of a localized food movement here. And if you could talk about why that is or what your impressions of you know, there's a tradition of trying to get back to it. This area had a lot of traditional farms, and I mean, not, not too many decades ago, it was actually an area that fed itself. Uh, but due to the sort of general trending towards consolidation in the economy and um, just the sort of near impossibility of actually making a living in agriculture in, in a rural area over time, that's become much, much less true. We've of, We've moved to a point where it's consolidated down to almost entirely wine grapes uh, and with a bit of cattle grazing around the fringes and a small amount of pears left of what used to be a fairly large pear area, but um, some price fluctuations kind of wiped that out. A couple of mid-sized apple growers that aren't too large. And other than that, the whole entirety of produce in Mendocino County is just a blip of almost a rounding error in the ag uh, report for the county these days. Uh, so there's not a whole lot of, of food production per se. We're sort of generations of fairly established uh, ranchers and farmers here and then there was a wave in the late 60s, early 70s of sort of back to the land, uh, people from the Bay Area that escaped to get back to the simple quote unquote living, which turned out to not be so very simple. Uh, so there's a lot of people that are though, interested in living simply. And those people have sort of formed a core of people that are interested in the localization thing. It really got going um, in Anderson Valley quite early. There's an Anderson Valley food shed group been active for a great number of years and in Willits just up the road uh, there was well the Willits Economic Localization Project which was one of the first and strongest sort of localization group or movements in the in the country so that got some seeds planted early in the area Ukiah followed on with its greater Ukiah localization project and you know since then it's 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 kept coming along what's interesting you know like everywhere else we have the, the larger farmers and ranchers are aging. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether their land will continue in agriculture. Uh, it's nearly impossible to make it as a small produce farmer here, but despite that, we're seeing something of a resurgence of it. And so uh, on that note, what have you been hearing in the community about the, uh, what are the concerns, I guess, of this uh, proposed Food Safety Modernization Act among this community that you work with? Well, you know, I, I think the big issue is that we're trying to get people to pay attention to it. 
I think there's things that people should be concerned about. Uh, for the most part, our farmers and ranchers are, you know, again, I mentioned that it's not all that economically viable, so most of them have some other job and a farm and a ranch, and then they go to a farmer's market and they have a family. Uh, so the notion that they're going to actually sit down and be aware of proposed legislation that runs into the hundreds of pages is far-fetched. Uh, so for the most part, they don't know uh, how this could affect them, which is why we're doing a lot of outreach about it. Given the proposed rules kind of stay as they are, for most of them, it won't matter that much. Most of them are small enough that they're going to be, be under the um, modified rules uh, which are not too high a bar, so you know most of them will be able to do that. Uh, the thing that I've come to think of as the most potentially damaging part of this is kind of the next layer. What we don't have and what we're just really looking at trying to rebuild is we, we don't have processing and local distribution facilities anymore. All of that's been sort of, all of that collapsed when we went to big farms. Um, or to sort of centralized ag, uh, all of that collapsed, and we don't have distribution routes, we don't have places where farms can aggregate stuff locally to get it out to restaurants, to get it into schools, so we're just really looking at trying to rebuild that kind of thing, and these rules, the, the preventative control rules that deal with processed foods, by the time you get to somebody that's doing aggregation, they may not qualify for an exemption, uh, but the huge problem is, you know, like I said, the farming is marginal already. People are barely making a living at it. By the time you add an aggregation point that adds some additional costs, it becomes even more marginal as to whether anybody's going to be able to afford honest, clean local food because it's competing against subsidized, subsidized corn syrup and packaged and processed stuff. So, you know, as long as that cheaper option is there, how are you going to compete with the relatively more expensive stuff, the stuff that enables people to make a living here? And if you then add a fairly expensive layer of brand new federal food safety mandates on top of that, that's very likely the final nail. Uh, it might just do in a lot of the efforts to do get, to create that next level of infrastructure that is what we really need for those farms to be able to just farm and not have to worry about coming to the farmer's market every week and to be able to have somebody that tells them, that does the interface with the uh, wholesalers on a bigger level with them and tells them, you know, if you can give me this much broccoli every week, we have a place for it so they can just work them on that and some place that can actually do processing, which is extremely important so that if they do too dang many tomatoes, uh, there's a place that's willing and able to make some pasta sauce with it uh, so that they get something out of that. It's that kind of processing that's really in jeopardy. And the other thing that's really tricky about these rules is um, kind of discourages neighborliness. Uh, in rural areas, um, a lot of farmers depend on their neighbors to haul stuff to the market for them. It doesn't, you know, if you decide you want to specialize in potatoes, uh, it may not make sense for you to come. You might grow the best darn potatoes, but come into the farmer's market with just potatoes is, you know, uh, particularly if it's a long haul, is not going to work out for you. But we have in California something called a second certification that's allowed where a farm that's coming to a farmer's market can bring things from two other farms with it. Uh, but the problem with these new rules as I read them is as soon as, if you're doing your own produce, you're not considered a processor and these processing rules don't apply to you. But as soon as you take something from your neighbor and help them with it, then suddenly you are a mixed type food processing facility and you've got this whole other layer of rules to worry about. So it's going to discourage sort of what has always been a common sort of helping each other out in rural areas kind of practice. Not aware of in fact, you know, in the 35 years plus of our certified farmers markets in Mendocino County, we are unaware of any food safety problem that's ever occurred. So you know, this sort of weight of new rules uh, trying to protect us from something is trying to protect us from something that, as far as we know, doesn't really exist. You know, the one other point about it that distresses me a bit is that, you know, there's something of a trend to diversify again. As I mentioned, a lot of our farms now, just because they had to survive, what they could survive on was grapes, went into a monocultural grape kind of production. Uh, but I believe a lot of them are, you know, not so comfortable with monoculture anymore and are thinking about trying to bring more things in. 
Uh, one of the other things that distresses me about the proposed rules is that they, when they determine whether you qualify for the lesser modified uh, regulations, the cutoff is $500,000, which sounds like a fairly big size operation until you realize that the definition of that is all food produced. Uh, and all food means anything that animals or humans eat. So if you're a cattle rancher and you've got some acres where you're growing hay and you've got your cattle, you know, you may be pretty close to that already. If you just decide that you want to add a vegetable patch to diversify a little bit, suddenly your little vegetable patch may get the full impact of the rules and not be feasible uh, because of the money you're making on completely unrelated operations. Um, the same with the vineyard. If you decide you want to diversify by making some raisins with some of those instead, you know, uh, those raisins now may, you know, because of your, because of the amount of money you make on grapes that aren't subject to this act because they're going to get processed further into wine, uh, but that revenue still counts, so you're, you may be discouraged from doing your new little raisin operation because of the huge increase in government compliance costs that come with then having to comply with these acts as a non-exempt farm. It is uncertain when the FDA will come out with either the next draft or their final law. Scott has experience with this kind of thing. Often government is good at ignoring its own deadlines. Theoretically, they'll take in all of these comments and then produce a set of final rules however many months or years from now it takes them to do it. However, these proposed rules had so many questions embedded in them where they're asking people for input and things they don't know themselves and so many gray areas in terms of having like real science behind some of the agricultural restrictions they were planning on putting in that can affect the larger farms um, that it wouldn't at all it would seem appropriate to me that there may be another round of comments before final rules yeah. so it could drag out quite a while yet. The deadline to submit public comments to the FDA regarding the Food Safety Modernization Act is today, November 15th. Your comments can still be postmarked and mailed today or submitted online. Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about the tumultuous love affair between former Utah Senator Arthur Brown and his mistress, Anne Bradley. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. In the 21st century, we consider political scandals and courtroom drama to be characteristic of modern times. But 100 years ago, things weren't all that different. In December 1906, Utah woman Ann Bradley sat alone in a Washington, D.C. jail cell. Her crime? The fatal shooting of her long-term lover, former Utah Senator Arthur Brown. Ann Bradley was a prominent young woman active in groups like the Salt Lake City Women's Club and the Utah Women's Press Club. She met Arthur Brown in 1892 through her work with the Utah Republican Party. The two began a lengthy love affair that went public when Brown was elected in 1896 as one of Utah's first two senators after statehood. Ann Bradley had two sons with Arthur Brown and expected him to marry her as soon as he divorced his wife. Bradley had a long wait for a divorce that never came. Then, in 1905, Brown's wife died, leaving him free to marry Bradley. Still, nothing happened. Repeated delays prompted Bradley to follow Arthur Brown to Washington, D.C. in 1906, where she found evidence that Brown was having another affair with Annie Adams, mother of famous Utah actress Maude Adams. Bradley confronted Brown in his hotel room and in a fit of rage shot him point blank. Brown was taken to the hospital where he later died. Salt Lakers were shocked but not surprised by Bradley's crime of passion. At her murder trial, Bradley pleaded emotional insanity and public sympathy swayed in her favor when it was discovered that Brown had written Bradley and their two sons out of his will. Anne Bradley was acquitted in Washington, D.C. and returned to Utah. She opened an antique shop in Salt Lake City that she operated until her death in 1950. On her death certificate, she is listed as a widow, her deceased husband, Arthur Brown. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were provided by Heidi Orchard. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. 
For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. Visiting Denali Park years ago when we lived in Alaska, my husband and I joined a bus tour to see some of its magnificent views. At the summit of Polychrome Mountain, a high, multi-hued pass from which you can see for miles, our group got off to look around. I wandered up a rock slide and my eye caught a spectacularly multicolored stone about the size of my thumb. I picked it up and was about to pocket it when from behind me came a bark from the park ranger. Put that down. Nothing's to be removed from this park. I've never forgotten the ranger's admonition, and today I still feel guilty when I pick up a small seashell on a beach strewn with millions of them. So you can imagine my horror, and the horror of millions worldwide, when two very unthinking Boy Scout leaders knocked off the top of one of the mushroom-shaped sandstone rocks in Goblin Valley State Park here in Utah. They said they did so because it, quote, seemed about to topple, unquote. The structure, a Jurassic formation as old as the dinosaurs, seemed to have weathered the last 170 million years just fine. But the two bubbas were just making sure that when it toppled, it wouldn't hurt any tourists. I shudder to think of these two guys cavorting around other cultural or wilderness sites. For example, Dateline, Yellowstone National Park, Wyoming. Investigating why Old Faithful hadn't erupted for two weeks, park rangers discovered that it had been filled with nearly 10 tons of gravel and debris. They've arrested two men from Salt Lake City who they said backed up their dump truck and unloaded it into the geyser during the middle of the night. This plugged Old Faithful and has caused the earth around it to swell to 10 feet in height. The men said they were protecting tourists who could be burned by the scalding steam that issues from the geyser on an almost hourly basis. Dateline, the Great Wall, Hinchinling, China. Officials in the Lop Lake Precinct have taken two American men into custody, accusing them of dynamiting 50 miles of the Great Wall of China. The two men told police they considered the 9,000-year-old wall an attractive nuisance that has caused untold thousands of spinal problems, pinched nerves, broken ankles, and maimed knees for millions of tourists every year. By destroying part of the wall, the men said, they were protecting tourists worldwide and saving the Chinese National Health Service millions and millions of yuan. Dateline, Mount Rushmore, Keystone, South Dakota. Two men from Utah were removed by helicopter from the mustache of President Theodore Roosevelt. Park rangers say the two men were seen rock climbing on the monument earlier in the day, but it was only when the climbers were heard chiseling T.R.'s mustache that rangers rappelled down his forehead to arrest them. The climbers, chisels in hand, defended their actions, claiming that the mustache had not weathered well in the last half century and, lest it wear away, fall, and hurt tourists and wildlife, they had decided to remove it for health and safety reasons. Charges are pending. This is Gina Whitcourt. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you.